cold silence that we don't dare speak. There's a wall between us and a river so deep. We keep pretending that there's nothing wrong. There's a code of silence and it can't go on. Hi folks, I'm Alan Watt and this is Cutting Through the Matrix on December the 15th, 2008. For newcomers, look into CuttingThroughTheMatrix.com and on the website you'll find hundreds of hours of talks I've given in the past where I try to fill in all the, the gaps they leave out in school for history and the very big gaps that the media leave out about pretty well every major story. Because time is of the essence now and we need as many shortcuts as possible. And even if we get them, even if we're to get all the shortcuts and enough people that didn't understand what was happening, it'd be very, very difficult, I must admit, to turn this around because so much planning and organization and money, big, big money, has organized the coming system that's just coming into view as Mr. Bush Sr. would have called it with his New World Order coming into view. But anyway, all we can do at this moment is gather information. And thank goodness there's lots of people out there who've looked into different areas. And when you ponder them all, you can start to get a big, big picture of what is really, truly happening beyond the media propaganda. And it truly is propaganda we're getting from the media. I also suggest that people look into Alan Watt's Sentient Sentinel. That's the European site, and on it you'll find transcripts of the talks I've given. You can download them, print them up, and pass them around to your friends. As I say, it's staggering to be alive today when you see the massive transformations happening in society. And for those who are just waking up now, it's probably the hardest time ever to wake up to see so much coming at them from so many sources with non-governmental organizations, many of them that sound official as though they are parts of government. There's hundreds of them like, like, like that. There's also so many organizations, mainly from the United Nations, of course, they have an umbrella of thousands of them, uh, that also have these official sounding titles, but really they are the NGOs. The NGOs, are, in turn, are funded by the big foundations, and the foundations all came out of, or they're all part at least, of the eugenics movement and the eugenics societies back in the 18 and 1900s. The eugenics movement talked from its very inception about sustainability. They were terrified of the masses breeding and overbreeding. And we could look at the time of history when eugenics was coming in big time because it really was at the heights of the Industrial Revolution with coal-fired generators everywhere and smokestacks everywhere and people have been, been crowded into cities. Across Europe, many cities were actually built just for the industries they served. And for the wealthy elite, to them, naturally, it appeared to be overcrowded conditions and it certainly was. They never built enough houses to start with. But then, in Nazi fear economics, 
It didn't matter how the people lived. They're all stacked on top of each other. And you had maybe four or five, maybe up to ten families in a big room at times in that revel, that so-called era. But they saw so many people. Now, if those folk were scattered still on the land, it'd be a different story altogether. And uh, otherwise, it boils down to perception. It's no different today, because the majority of the public since the last so-called Great Depression, the majority of the public since then have lived in the cities, 97%. Before the revolution that that happened, it was 97 on the land. Be back with more after this break.
that means that working for yourself, as you think you're working for yourself, has to go out the window. This is what they're talking about, sustainable development. You'll get eventually in this new world order that's coming just as much as you probably will need and no more. It's already been ratified long ago at the United Nations that every country in the world would get a basic, absolute basic form of health service. There will be, of course, an alternate one for the wealthy elite, and there still will be wealthy elite in the system. But for the masses, we have to be trained and monitored from birth to death. And that's only so long as this generation goes through its cycle and we die off. Because the next cycle, again, will be specially bred people, at least genetically enhanced, as I like to call it, the result of, of the mating of sperm and ovum, selected from good breeders, as they say. That's definitely on the books. And then the next step, of course, will be to literally create from scratch human beings to serve them better. But as I say, that doesn't help the people who are going through this right now. It seems totally overwhelming to, when you see the vast networking of organizations across the planet, the thousand points of light, as Mr. Senior called them. They're also called soft power. Soft power is written into the various documents by the Council of Foreign Relations and the United Nations. Soft power are the NGO advocacy groups that spread their gospels, whatever their area of expertise is. But what's astonishing, you'll find that these organizations, which are all under the, U the UN umbrella, must adapt, adapt and adopt the whole UN agenda and all the politically correct terms. It is really an upgraded Soviet system on steroids. It truly, truly is. And I talked before about the technocrats, the ones that Professor Carol Quigley said were the real men behind the scenes with power. They're unelected. They get the job done. They're the parallel governments. And he called it a parallel government. He's referring to the Council on Foreign Relations, primarily the Trilateral Commission and the Royal Institute of International Affairs, the big founder. And we have to remember, too, that from the books I've been reading from other members, such as Bertrand Russell and so on, that Nazism was not born in Germany. I read articles last week from one of Russell's books, and with his eugenics policies and so on in that book, plus the social system of control over the public that he was advocating, really, um, Nazism got its idea from London, England. There's no doubt about that whatsoever. And those characters lived through World War II and afterwards and were still attending these global meetings. But getting back to the technocrats, the Maurice Strong types, the Kissinger types, the ones who never retire, they're jetting all over the world, and they can't retire for some reason. They can't do it. You'll only find that in the dedication, that kind of dedication, in a religious fanaticism. That's the only time you'll find this kind of dedication. And in TheEconomist.com on Tuesday, December 16th, this is what came out on TheEconomist.com. The this article, right on cue, right on time, 
It says, the world in 2009, United States, an end of hubris. It says that the world in 2009, the print edition, this is the print edition I'm reading here. America will be less powerful, but still the essential nation in creating a new world order, argues Henry Kissinger, a former Secretary of State and founder of Kissinger Associates. Now, this man himself, in the 70s, declared the enemy to the state. The main enemy to the state was overpopulation. And money was advocated big, sums of money, primarily to ground the third world, setting up abortion clinics and so on. They call them family planning clinics. But there was also covert uh, material there as well, just to end to end up with bringing the population down at home as well. So here he is, the same, the same winner here, who's backed by very important, very powerful people. He says, the most significant event of 2009 will be the transformation of the Washington consensus that market principles trumped national boundaries. The World Trade Organization, the IMF, and the World Bank defended that system globally. You have to go into the history of these three. It's, it's fascinating. Absolutely fascinating to see how they're, they're really all one, to be honest with you. And all get their funding from the same source. No one for economic development. That was set up in 1947. But it says, it defended that system globally. Periodic financial crises were interpreted not as warning signals of what could befall the industrial nations, but as aberrations of the developing world to be remedied by domestic stringency, a policy which the advanced countries were not, in the event, prepared to apply to themselves. The absence of restraint encouraged a speculation whose growing sophistication matched its mounting lack of transparency. An unparalleled period of growth followed, but also the delusion that an economic system could sustain itself via debt indefinitely. Now, I read articles again about a week or two ago, uh, from some of the big players that talked 30 years ago about the U.S. would eventually crumble from, in, from within to, with, because of this burden of debt. So this is nothing new. They knew this was going to happen. They planned it that way. In reality, our country could live in such a profligate manner only so long as the rest of the world retained confidence in its economic prescriptions. That period has now ended. Any economic system, but especially a market economy, produces winners and losers. If the gap between them becomes too great, the losers will organize themselves politically and seek to recast the existing system within nations and between them. This will be a major theme of 2009. America's unique military and political power produced a comparable psychological distortion. The sudden collapse of the Soviet Union, well, we know it didn't suddenly collapse. It was the plan attempted the United States to proclaim universal political goals in a world of seemingly unipolarity, but objectives were defined by slogans rather than strategic feasibility. Now that the clay feet of the economic system have been exposed, the gap between a global system for economics and a global political system based on the state must be addressed as a dominant task in 2009. This is all about uh, an integrated economic system with uh, a new centralized bank for the planet. That's what he's really getting at here. The economy must be put on a, sec a sound footing, entitlement programs reviewed, and the national dependence on debt overcome. 
that's impossible to overcome the debt unless you just write it off, and, and they should. Hopefully, in the process, past lessons of excessive state control will not be forgotten. The debate will be over priorities, transcending the long-standing debate between idealism and realism. Economic constraints will oblige America to define its global objectives in terms of a mature concept of the national interest. Of course, a country that has always prided itself on exceptionalism will not abandon the moral convictions by which it defined its greatness. But America needs to learn to discipline itself into a strategy of gradualism that seeks greatness in the accumulation of the attainable. And we'll be back with more of this, this speech. It's a remarkable one after this break. Alan walked back, cutting through the Matrix reading an article put up by Henry Kissinger. And Kissinger, when he speaks, you better listen, because he represents a lot of powerful people who will never come forward until they've won their game. And I think they'd only come forward when we're all brain-chipped and couldn't recognize them. But he's a very, very important player in this. He says, every major country will be uh, driven by the constraints of the fiscal crisis to re-examine its relationship to America. Now, they knew long ago when they were setting up the European Union, and they set up the offices of bureaucrats to deal with the integration of Europe in 1948 across Europe. Every government had a department which they kept quiet from the general public. And they knew they'd eventually get a currency, and the United States knew this too because the U.S. was helping to fund the European integration. It was part of the Marshall Plan at the end of World War II. So they, they knew that eventually the bigger countries would eventually adopt the EU and even the oil companies in the Middle East would start to use whatever currency they came out with in Europe. So this is no big surprise. We're not caught off balance. We are not. They'd like to play it that way because we must always believe that things just happen uh, by happenstance in our lifetime, like some sort of series of coincidences. That's how it's presented to us. And they knew, too, that the U.S. would be exhausted financially by funding a world army. I think there's over 700 bases, U.S. bases, military bases, Air Force and Naval, across the world. They've been the policemen of the world up to this point. As America narrows its horizons, what is a plausible security system and aimed at what threats? What is the future of capitalism? And by the way, in the paragraph before, he also says, he says, our allies must be prepared to face the necessary rather than the confining foreign policy to so-called soft power. Changing over to soft power, as I said before, soft power uh, means NGOs and their advocates and basically evangelizing through media to convince the public they call it raising public awareness. What they mean was, is brainwashing you, indoctrinating you. Because when the new system is coming up, the old democracy is gone. The new democracy is a, a group, or the largest groups, all working together uh, on behalf of the public. That is the Soviet system. And that's the one, of course, that the big think tanks preferred 
collectivism. I've read from the articles and the books. I said, what is the future of capitalism? How in such circumstances does the world deal with global challenges such as nuclear proliferation or climate change? So he's very politically correct. He's got all that stuff in it too. America will remain the most powerful country but will not retain the position of self-proclaimed tutor as it learns the limits of hegemony it should define implementing consultation beyond largely American conceptions. The G8 will need a new role to embrace China, India, Brazil, and perhaps South Africa. The immediate challenge in Iraq, if the surge strategy holds, there must be a diplomatic conference in 2009 to establish principles of non-intervention and define the country's international responsibilities. Dilatory diplomacy towards Iran must be brought to a focus. The time available to forestall an Iranian nuclear program is shrinking. This is the hype. As they change their guns down through the center, even Napoleon mentioned this about England. He called it uh, uh, perfidious England, he said. They were always making treaties, breaking treaties, siding with the ones they were opposing, back and forth, back and forth. And that's really what we've seen happen in the last 20, 30 years. I can remember when Ronald Reagan was in, and he was calling Gaddafi uh, the evil genius as he brought sites to bear. And then he went off to somewhere in Latin America and, and attacked it with the naval fleet as because of the claim that it was, it was overrun with Cubans and so on. But they always changed their, their, their sites, and suddenly you've got a new enemy that's always worse than any other enemy that's ever existed, and they always use almost religious terminology to justify it. There must be war must be, begin and be used on moral, with moral judgments, moral reasoning, moral terminology. So with the evil Iranians, who are now the greatest threat on the planet, you see. And it's, why is it they can allow India and Pakistan to have these bombs and no one else? See, that doesn't make sense logically either. It says, in 2009, the realities of Afghanistan will impose themselves. No outside power has ever prevailed by establishing central rule, as Britain learned in the 19th century. That's when Britain was in there for the opium in the Khyber Pass and all the rest of it. They couldn't take it. They couldn't hold it for too long. Since then, the Soviet Union in the 20th century, the collection of nearly autonomous provinces which define Afghanistan coalesce in opposition to outside attempts to impose central rule. That's their natural state. They're, they're tribal, very tribal. Decentralization of the current effort is essential. All this requires a new dialogue between America and the rest of the world. Other countries, while asserting their growing roles, are likely to conclude that a less powerful America still remains indispensable. America will have to learn that world order depends on a structure that participants support because they help bring it about. If progress is made on these enterprises, 2009 will mark the beginning of a new world order. And I'll be back with more after this break. You're listening to the Republic Broadcasting Network because you can handle the truth.
Hi folks, I'm Alan Watt, we're cutting through the matrix and everything that's being disclosed now is, is, is right in your face with a lot of the truth, at least as far as their agenda goes, they tell you where they're taking us and what Kissinger will leave out there, there's many other articles that will fill in the things that they hinted at or touched briefly on because we're going into a totally controlled society based on sustainable development, but it's also to do with having better types of humans and classifying us literally as types and subtypes and all the rest of it, who is essential to society and civilization, as they like to call it. And that's what it's all about. I was looking at the latest census forms that Britain has published and there's no stone left unturned. There's absolutely no privacy in it whatsoever. Even as about your sex life and your religious preferences and all this kind of stuff. Everything is down there. Everything. Because we're owned. We are the profane, as they like to call the public. We live in a world of darkness. It's a darkness that they gave us. And they gave us it by keeping the light away, which was the truth about anything. Reality is made up of perceptions by the people at the bottom and most of the data is fed to them by those at the top. They always give us mythological reasons for things happening and put history down in a, in a mythological fashion as well. They never tell you the whys and wherefores. That's why I like authors like Professor Carol Quigley, who was the historian for the CFR, who like, who like to give you the, the blank parts to fill them all in for you and tell you the reasons for wars, the financial backers behind it, those who are going to profit and run societies after the wars. It's simply strategy, long-term strategy and a business plan. And I'll take a call from, I've got a call from Ireland there. That's from Mick from Ireland. Are you there? Hello, Mick? Are you there? Yes? Can you, you can hear me, yeah? Yes, I got you. All right, just got two quick questions for you. Hello? Yes. Um, you talk about Huxley. What do you think of Huxley's uh, doors of perception? Well, Huxley, again, part of his... He wasn't the only one at that time that were getting paid to go out and promote this kind of stuff. They also had Timothy O'Leary as well. Uh, and it was now, it's now admitted Timothy O'Leary, they went around the world, Dr. Timothy O'Leary, wearing his white coat uh, at universities, uh, advocating LSD and all the rest of it, uh, was working for the, uh, for the CIA. That's been officially disclosed now. We know for a fact that Huxley himself was uh, working with MI5 and MI6 during World War II and afterwards in the Department of Culture Creation. So... Um, I'm not surprised they wanted to use... Remember, it was Huxley himself who, were, who sat in on meetings as far back as 1930 uh, talking about how to control a society through pharmacology. He wanted to drug the entire planet to make them more docile and easily managed. So it's very enticing the way it's written for youngsters, thinking of some magical experiences. But this is, it was really to get us all hooked on drugs uh, so that we'd, we'd prefer the drugged state of unreality and we'd be out of the picture. We'd be no problems at all to a system, to a government that wanted to control our lives 
and treat us as they wished, we would be too stoned to and happy to care, literally. Uh, all right, and another one. What about Alan Watts or Alan Watts? Sorry. Well, he again was put out. He began as an Anglican priest, and he joined the right societies and organisations. And at that time, anyone who promoted the New Age movement was also getting funding from big foundations, because the New Age was to be coupled with the taking of drugs. In fact, so uh, he came out and he went through his different. Um, religious uh, searches and have ended up basically with uh, Hinduism in reality and promoted alternate religions. You've got to understand too that all of the big organizations did agree that to bring in this world order and to, to get society to allow those changes to come through that would affect their very individual lives, they had to put the nail on the coffin of Christianity completely and so they were promoting all um, a blend of Eastern religions, exactly as Blavatsky said they would. They'd eventually uh, unite Hinduism with a watered-down Christianity. And that's what you have today. You have interfaith Christianity that, that has bits of all the New Age through it as well. You, you also have a Christianity that does not believe in evil anymore. Everything's good. You have a good God. Everything's wonderful. That's that's just the new age. Mm. It seemed more targeting the individual to me, like uh, making people more aware of the individual, mm -hmm. of your own individuality. Uh, one more, and then I'm going. Uh, what did you think of Lisbon Treaty Two, Round Two, Roland? The, the what? Oh yeah, yeah, that's coming up now because this this is, and, and they're really going after the farmers now to make them vote the correct way. <laughs> Yeah, I'd rather go without pig there for a while. <laughs> yes, they, they won't be happy, and and even if they vote down down again, they'll, they'll come back again and again and again. Yeah. Um, and if if the country revolts, what do you think? <laughs> mm -hmm. No. Uh, yeah, I know that that's uh, what we have already. You see, really, is a de facto totalitarian system that is not going to tolerate as not voting and doing as they wish us to do. Uh, that's been made very obvious by some of the top people in these big organizations. So sure, what, is the, what is the answer, you know? Yeah, all right, cheers for that. Thanks for calling them. And, and that's what you got. We've got a, a system that's incredibly powerful, arrogant, and they're all on board. Every agency, every NGO, Prattles the same talk on every topic. You see, in the Soviet system, you you could not take part of it. You could agree with and say, yeah, that seems okay, and look at another part that might abhor you. You know, you have to swallow the whole thing and part all of it, and that's what we have when they talk about consensus building amongst the NGOs towards this this new sustainable agenda. You have to accept all of it. Ultra feminism. There's an article in the paper just today uh, of how far this has gone it's the uh, it's from it's from um, Australia I believe it's the the Herald Sun and here's how far they've gone in Australia it says discrimination against white males will soon be encouraged it's been made law and uh, it's by Susie O'Brien 
December the 9th, 2008. Discrimination against dominant white males will soon be encouraged in a bid to boost the status of women, the disabled and cultural and religious minorities. Such positive, they're calling it positive discrimination. Treating people differently in order to obtain equality for marginalized groups is set to be legalized under planned changes to the Equality Opportunity Act, foreshadowed last week by State Attorney General Rob Howells. The laws are also expected to protect the rights of people with criminal records to get a job, as long as their past misdeeds are irrelevant to work being sought. Equal Opportunity Commission CEO Dr. Helen Skoki, or, or Zoki said males had been the big success story in business and goods and services. Clearly they will have their position changed because they will be competing in a different way with these people who have been traditionally marginalized, he said. Let's open it up so everyone can have a fair go. Victoria's peak business body expressed concern yesterday about the need for the proposed laws and questioned if they would undermine the right of companies to make legitimate business decisions. At present, individuals or bodies wanting to single out any race or gender for special treatment must get an exemption from VCAT. Companies and public bodies accused of discrimination can only be held to count after a complaint has been made. But the proposed changes go much further, allowing the Commission to inquire into discrimination, seize documents and search and enter in premises after attempts to bring about change have failed. Businesses and individuals would be required to change their ways even if a complaint had not been received. Action could be taken where an unlawful act was likely to occur, likely to occur. This is pre-arrest again, not just in cases where discrimination has taken place. The Commission would also have real teeth to enforce its rulings via VCAT and as a last resort in the courts. The changes shown in the Department of Justice report by former public advocate Julian Gardner would also educate people so they know their rights, give more protection to people with disabilities, requiring companies and public entities to reasonably accommodate their needs, grant the homeless and people who act as volunteers better protection from discrimination. This sounds all that part sounds all very wonderful. Don't want to help. This has nothing to do with helping people. Victorian Employers Chamber of Commerce and Industry Workplace General Manager David Gregory said business supported the objectives of equal opportunity legislation. Well, he would, because the Chamber of Commerce is all part of this umbrella United Nations group. And it's called positive discrimination. Not reverse discrimination, but positive discrimination. That's what they're calling it. Quite amazing, isn't it? And again, it was under the fallacy that all white men in all ages have just lived on the top of the heap. It's against all logic and all factual history. A century ago, most white men were illiterate. They worked in very low-paid jobs, very dirty, dangerous jobs. They did not live at the top of any heap. And they lived a very, very poor lifestyle. That's the reality of it. Now we'll go to back to the phones and we'll go to Danny in Georgia. Are you there, Danny? Yeah, hey, Alan. Yes. Yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm calling from Southern Oregon. Okay. Yeah, but uh, I got two questions for you. And the first one has to do with, uh, you know, the use of cannabis. And yes. Is, is that more associated with Hinduism and that whole New Age movement? Yeah. Um, but again, there's no doubt about it. That's why they, they brought it in. It was 
when I was growing up in Britain, it was not there. And suddenly, with the, the Beatles and, and the massive sudden increase in India, and all the magazines and books churning, uh, getting churned out and put on the shelves quickly, um, it became the end thing almost overnight. Uh, yeah. But you, you find the Jainists in, in, uh, in India uh, use it as part of their religious ceremonies. They have special harvests of, of uh, marijuana, etc., and various drugs. So, yeah, it's part of some religious ceremonies in, in India, yeah. Yeah, it's interesting because where I live in Southern Oregon, it's such a part of the culture here. And it's, uh, you know, it's really part of the counterculture and, and the youth. I'm in my 20s and mm -hmm. it just seems, you know, everyone is so immersed in it. And, uh, and, you know, even the form of economy that it's become too yeah. is, uh, just kind of driven everyone down this one path. And I really see it so, uh, so clearly. And I myself, you know, deal with it and struggle with it on my own, but, you know, I always look for insight into where it came from, but mm -hmm. thanks for that. And uh, the other question I had uh, is in relation to uh, uh, music and the music industry. Yeah. And um, and and how do you feel, uh, you know, using music as a platform, you know, for sharing information, especially with the youth nowadays? Um, you know, I, I feel like people can, you know, absorb information and, and uh, you know, have their, you know, thoughts stimulated by, you know, hearing you know, maybe a political hip-hop rapper or, you know, maybe a reggae singer or, you know, how do you feel about that? And I know you had mentioned hip-hop and, you know, uh, yeah, well, again, you can get the same effects. There are universities in Canada where you can get the same effects as marijuana from a helmet you put on your head because it uses very, very low frequency ELF waves and stimulates the, the temporal lobe of the brain. And they've compared them study after study, and every intake of students into the psychology classes and so on gets to try this on. And what they're experiencing is, is exactly the same thing, only it's, it's induced by a very, very low frequency of, uh, of uh, elect uh, well, electromagnetic radiation, basically. Because our brains work on very, very low currents of, of uh, electricity, not the so high currents. But, so um, would you be saying the uh, listening to music then would have that same effect as well? Absolutely. They've compared the helmets with, uh, for instance, um, cannabis, uh, and the, the experiences are, are just the, the same, the exact same, yeah. Oh, interesting. Well, uh, Yeah, and, and some of them also get little religious experiences or the same sort of things that you will experience when uh, you're, you're dying out-of-body experiences that also has been proven they can do that with the same helmets stimulating the same parts of the brain. Wow. Pretty scary. All right. Well, um, I guess that was about it. Yep. So I yeah, appreciate you answering my questions. Yeah, thanks for calling. Yeah, it, it's um, and it's up to the individual. I mean, it's true it's up to the individual what they do um, with themselves. There's no doubt about it. It should be up to the individual to do as they want to do, that people should be aware that um, there are people who do get addicted even to what's called the soft drugs, and they can't do without it. They do get paranoid, and um, it also helps them lose incentive in work and life, etc. That's all part of it, too, uh, unfortunately. We find people like Huxley talking about the hope of creating a super drug, a type of soma drug, the mythical Soma drug of, of ancient uh, India, 
that would keep everybody happy and content. And, and he did say in his speech at Berkeley, and you'll find the speech on my website, that Huxley said, what's, what's wrong with drugging the public? He said, after all, their, their lives aren't very happy anyway. Most folk are not happy. So what's wrong if we go ahead and find ways to drug them? Well, he could say that because he worked for the elite who had given us a very unhappy system. There's nothing fair or just in the system, uh, economic-wise or any otherwise. Everyone's afraid of, de- of um, poverty. Uh, everyone's afraid of getting sick and not getting treatment. And, and, and it's, it's based on not getting Our whole system is based on you producing and consuming and not getting sick. Uh, what kind of humane system is that? It's not humane at all. I'll be back with more after this break. I'm Alan Watt for Cutting Through the Matrix. And is David from South Carolina there? Hello, Alan. Hello. Hey, it's great to speak with you. How are you? Um, I just had a quick question for you. Um, what is your opinion of prayer? Um, and I'm coming at this from a person who is, I guess I consider myself a deist. Uh, I believe in the Creator and I believe in prayer. I'm not a Christian, but, mm-hmm. but what, what is your opinion of that? Uh, I think it would all depend. Uh, I think all prayer probably... Um, just the meditative state of prayer itself uh, will help people come to clear understandings of that which they're praying about even. Mm-hmm. Um, we live in a strange world where we've been so dumbed down, so, so abused, unfortunately, by religions which simply work on behalf of power elites and, and the system uh, that um, all kinds of, of Prayer has got a bad rap. Um, I think anyone who's hurting and going through uh, their own personal struggles and their own personal hell uh, will, will, will go to it in one form or another, even if they don't know they're doing it. And I think if they, they um, are honest with themselves uh, as to where they are in life, why they're there, and so on, then, and I know this from people who've told me this, uh, that I, I believe, that um, for them, if they've been very honest and broken, generally, uh, they, they get some kind of help that seems to cut things will help them, uh, maybe yeah. not financially or get them out the rut they're in, but they, they can get a, a, a self-confidence they never had before, uh, a self-confidence and self-worth in themselves. Yeah, yeah it's a peace of mind. Uh, yeah, I found that to be absolutely true. Mm-hmm. Um, if nothing else, you know, it's sort of a... I guess I've ritualized it to the point where it's uh, something I normally do uh, quite a bit, but um, mm-hmm. it's something that's uh, a reinforcement, I guess. Of, uh, you see, most the, most uh, most prayers, unfortunately, are as you say, they're ritualized, yeah. they're they're formalized, and it's it's mainly a liturgy of what someone wants. Yeah. And most of the thing that the most things that people really want um, are not necessarily the best things for them. You know what? Actually made it a point um, to not ask for things, as in uh, yeah. personal credit. Uh, you don't ask for money and all these kinds of things. But 
mm-hmm. uh, just generally uh, ask for good things for other people and uh, for normalcy, so to speak, uh, considering the world we're in. Uh, Normally, normalcy, I guess, as uh, I, I think what everyone be. really is looking for is some kind of peace within yeah. the chaos. Yeah, peace of mind, exactly what it is. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, everything out there is designed to get you frustrated, angry. Yeah. Um, and, and uh, you know, people at the bottom will fight each other to the end. They'll kill each other mm-hmm. when they don't hear what they like, or, or they have a particular beef or something. Mm-hmm. They don't see the big picture, and you could never, you couldn't get the mass man to get together and fight a common enemy. Uh, that's almost impossible. And I think, I think that's always probably been the way of things down through history. Even in rebellions, it was found that only a few percentage would get involved and actually do the dirty work and take the consequences. That's right. You had to demonize the guy down the road. <laughs> yep, that's pretty well. Hey, well, Alan, God bless you. I'm, I'm so grateful you're on this network and this network's still going. And yep, thank thanks you for much. calling. Right and that's the end of it for tonight. There was lots of rain last night on top of the snow and bending of trees. So I'll be busy for the next week or so. From Hamish, myself, and Ontario, Canada, it's good night, and may your God or your God's go with you.